everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Bible Breakdown. It is Thanksgiving week, so I'm sure you were just thinking of all the things you were thankful for, but realized because Thursday was Thanksgiving that there'd be no Bible Breakdown and you were sad, but lo and behold, here we are. There will be a Bible Breakdown just being done on Tuesday, so I can eat lots of food on Thursday and not worry about being awake for doing the Bible breakdown. Fun fact, if you don't know this about me, I'm allergic to poultry. So Thanksgiving can be a a tough time for me, though I like ham a lot anyway. So it's okay. I hope you do have a happy Thanksgiving and uh, safe travel and all that. And for those of you who can eat turkey, um, the less there is in the world of it, the better for me. So go ahead and uh, use that as your reason for eating that second helping of turkey this week. We are not going to be talking about eating this week overall in the Bible Breakdown. Instead, we will be talking about the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So this is our last story from the Genesis 1 through 11, which I I mentioned in at least one, are uh, 11 chapters that you could spend years on trying to understand. Um, We've spent just a few weeks. Uh, Years would have gotten old pretty quick, I think. But uh, it is the last of the what we call like the primeval events, so the earliest history of the earth. Um, these stories are moving towards setting up our first major character. Uh, spoiler alert, it will be Abram. And we'll talk about that toward the end here. Um, and so this is the last of those kind of big, like the flood, creation. Um, then we had we have the Tower of Babel, these kind of famous stories that um, are um, kind of almost like have this mythical, hard to understand element to them that explain some of the earliest uh, things in the earth in the earliest parts of human history. So um, this, like I said, follows the flood narrative and what we call the table of nations. So that's Noah's uh, descendants, his sons. So we get um, the descendants of Ham, who was the brother who Noah gets mad at. And so all his descendants are the Canaanites and other such people. And then we got Japheths, but we actually don't get Shems until the end of 11. And there's going to be a good reason for that. Um, but this uh, story helps us understand a little bit about this table of nations. So we call it table of nations because a lot of the uh, sons that Ham and Japheth and eventually um, to an extent Shem will have um, are the names of the nations you see once um, you get into like numbers and um, into Joshua and first uh, second Chronicles, first second Kings, all that good stuff. So a lot of those nations that the Israelites have trouble with uh, our descendants of those two fellows. And so um, it helps us understand their lineage a little bit. Um, and in those tables of nations, it talks about how they each form their own languages and all these kind of things. And so, um, but when, if you look at like how the generations play out and the amount of time, um, you see that there are some uh, events that happen that um, probably must have necessitated this happening. And so this Tower of Babel kind of interrupts the table of nations to explain, and here's how all these nations came to be dispersed, came to have their own languages and cultures. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I do just want to also clarify something. Um, you may, so usually you hear it called the Tower of Babel. Sometimes you'll hear it called Tower of Babylon, and you hear somebody say that, and you're like, oh, it's not Tower of Babylon, it's Tower of Babel. Well, it's, the tower was in the region of Babylon. So um, I'm not saying that the Tower of Babel eventually becomes the city of Babylon, like it's a straight line A to B, but it's it's that same region. Um, there's definitely overlap in terms of where, where the Tower of Babel most likely was. We see it's in the Valley of Shinar. That is the region of Babylonia. 
and is going to have some of those cities of Babylon. So technically calling it the Tower of Babylon is really not wrong. Um, and where we know what this is actually one of our um, clear, one of our best geographical um, sites we actually have that we are like, hey, we're actually pretty sure where the biblical Babylon was. It's in a modern day uh, Iraq, like southern Iraq. Um, and then the city of Ur, which was kind of a part of that um, same region of Babylonia. And that's where um, we see Abram comes from. Um, that's in that same region, just a little farther south than where we would see probably the city of Babylon. So a very uh, historically meaningful site there in Iraq. And um, the, probably somewhere in that region is where this story unfolds. So we are going to be in Genesis 11, checking out the Tower of Babel. So verses one through two say this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Okay, so um, first of all, we're going to go to, we're going to go broad strokes here. So when it says now the whole earth, um, this actually creates a little bit of trouble. And it's the same kind of thing that we actually see during the flood narrative. I don't actually think I talked about it, but it's this Hebrew phrase, kol ha'aretz which means all the earth, but here's the, here's the flying ointment. The same word that is used for earth that we would understand to mean the whole world also has this meaning land, meaning it can refer to a specific part of the earth. So you think, well, okay, it says the whole earth. Yeah. There's a, there's a quote in um, Exodus 10, 15. It uses the same kol ha'aretz and it says the whole land, but it's referring to Egypt. And you kind of get that from the, context of it. Now, I say that just because there are some people who um, think that this was a more isolated event. This Tower of Babel was not literally the whole earth, but it was like one, it was just these, these people who moved into the land of Shinar. Um, I think that uh, generally speaking, the context, especially given that we just talked about the flood, lends us to believe that this is more of a whole earth, like it's got, like it's translated here in the ESV. So the, the difference would be um, in the table of nations, when it says there were many different um, languages, um, it says that after the descendants of Ham and Japheth, you could say, okay, they dispersed and they did what they were supposed to. And they started to form these different languages, whereas maybe Shem's descendants did not. I don't think there's necessarily a good reason to think that, not that it would be necessarily unbiblical to think that or to, say that scripture's wrong or anything. I think it probably just lends itself best um, given the context, especially with the global flood and all these nations and everything that this serves more to um, the bi biblical understanding explanation of how different languages and cultures came to be. So the Kol Haaretz here, we're going to take as whole earth, like you're going to see in most of your English translations and not to just mean this one specific plot of land. There's also no clear um, referent for that. So if it was like, again, in Exodus, you kind of know you're talking about Egypt because a lot of that's unfolding in Egypt. Whereas this, there's no really clear referent to who this people would be. We know they went to Shinar, but where they come from? Like, what is that whole land? If you're you know, playing devil's advocate, trying to uh, argue for the other view. So um, the whole earth probably is the most likely here um, though, anytime you see in Hebrew, or if you are reading in English, you see the word land, or you see the word earth, um, just keep in mind that um, depending like the authors um, or the rather the translators have to kind of make sometimes interpretive decisions on what they think the author was uh, referring to. So, um, like I said, no specific 
referent, no specific modifier, no like of Egypt, of Canaan, of anything like that. So all the earth seems likely. But now getting into the story specifically, we see that there's a problem right off the bat and the people have all decided that they are going to settle together instead of spreading out. So if you remember back in Genesis 9, when they come off the ark, God gives this command to Noah and his family to fill the earth. It says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God's uh, design for them was to spread out so that they would fill the earth, not just all gather in one place, which I think this is, I don't think we should just overlook this, that, um, uh, I don't, I don't know, maybe whatever you think God's reasoning might've been for that. Not as if he owes us a reason, but I do think what we can see fairly clearly from this command is that God has a desire and a design for diversity, um, and that he doesn't want, um, he, he doesn't have in mind this race of homogenous people that are all exactly alike. Uh, from the very beginning, he wants these three sons and their families to, multiply and fill the earth and to spread out. Um, and so uh, we see this desire for diversity. You can imagine if, you know, one say like they migrate to the coast um, and they live off next to the ocean, they're going to have a very different life than people who live in the mountains or people who live in the plains. They're going to develop different um, culture. They're going to develop different words. They have things to describe that the others don't. They're going to have to develop different kinds of uh, ways of living. They're going to have different maybe tools as well. So you can just imagine just from spreading out and living in different places, the diversity that would come from that. Um, not to mention if you think um, from a um, like geographical standpoint that hey, if you live next to the equator versus you live far from the equator, all the kind of differences that come in there. Um, so I think what we see from that is uh, I think we can, we can easily point to the fact that um, God values diversity in humanity and that there's uh, ways that all of us um, from all races, ethnicities, gender, um, socioeconomic access, um, location, like all those different ways. We find ways of imaging God in those different ways. But um, this people here in Genesis 11, they were not about it. And they instead decided that they were going to all go find this one plane. They're missing out on the mountains and the beach. You, know, you say, are you a mountains person or a beach person? These are plains people, apparently. So that's a much smaller subset. But nonetheless, they have chosen the plane. Well, okay, maybe if there's a plane, maybe there's some mountains. And that's why it's a plane versus maybe there are mountains nearby. You know what? We're not going to get into it. But all that to say, I don't think that planes would have been my first choice. But maybe they were really good at farming. So they all go to this uh, plane in the land of Shinar and they settle there. And that's what I was talking about earlier with Babylon and the land that is uh, what we believe to be modern day rock is where they settle. Okay. And so that's a problem because they were not supposed to all go as a people to migrate one place and settle one place. Uh, now moving into verse three, it says this, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they learn how to make bricks. They get some mortar and they know just what to do with it. They say, let's build ourselves. Just listen to the language that they use here to describe what they want to do. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. So it's basically, let's do all these things for ourselves, 
lest we be forced to do what God has asked us to do. That's effectively what you get. And this idea that let us make a name for ourselves, a tower with the top in its heavens. They obviously had this, uh, these delusions of grandeur that they were going to be uh, just an incredible civilization, that they would be able to um, make a name for themselves by their building, which ironically they will, but not for the reasons they suspected. Um, and they do this all for the purpose of not dispersing over the face of the whole earth. So that's their motivation is to make a name and to basically be disobedient. Um, those are their two motives. So very self-serving. Um, and it's not like anyone who's ever built a city is someone wrong, but not only this disobedience to God's command, but also just this heart of, um, self-preservation and comfort and also self-glorification, I think is what comes up. So they want to make a name they don't want to be dispersed. They clearly think that it's more comfortable, um, that they should be gathered together. It's a good thing. None of us struggle with choosing comfort over obedience. Yikes. It's so easy to choose comfort over obedience, isn't it? We'll talk about it a little bit at the end. Uh, so in five through seven, um, we get a little bit of an intervention here from the Lord. And it says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So again, we get this. Uh, if, if you listen to either, I think it was a couple, maybe it's couple weeks ago, we talked about the name Yahweh, um, this covenant name for God. And when we see that, uh, that Lord in capitals, um, in our Bible, that's how we know we're using the word Yahweh there. So the covenant God of his people is who's being referred to here. Um, and that's going to have that I think has to a lot of meaning coming from the covenant that God made with Noah, with the rainbow and saying that he'd never destroy the earth in a flood. Perhaps that's meant to remind us that um, he is a covenant God so that when we see this disobedience, we're not like, oh, here comes a flood, I guess. But we're instead called to remember, oh, this is the covenant making God. Um, he's promised not to destroy the world by a flood. So we don't have to worry about that. But um, basically, when he sees the tower, I just think this is so interesting. He says they are one people. They have one language, language and this is only the beginning of what they'll do. If you were to see that in another context, you might be like, OK, we've got the start of something really good here. But that's not what God had designed them for. It's not what he had asked of them for. So instead, um, God is not pleased that they have had this kind of homogeneity to them, that they're all the same type of person living in the same place. Um, and he recognizes they will continue to build toward their own glory and against his command um, if left to their own devices. Uh, we see time and time again in this these first 11 chapters that uh, man's sin is constantly in view that we are constantly reminded that humanity is sinful and does not pursue the things of God. So God um, decides that um, the solution is to confuse the language so that when they do not understand each other, they won't be able to continue this building that they will be led to spread out. Um, This let us in verse seven is a reminiscent of Genesis 1 26 uh, remember, let us create man in our image. That's kind of this first uh, divine, some, it's sometimes referred to as a divine plural. Um, or um, we talked about in the creation narrative, this plural of majesty, that 
Um, some for, for a very uh, glorious person, you might use the plural of their name uh, rather than uh, the singular to give them the uh, glory that they deserved. Um, again, this is this to us being New Testament believers, we understand more fully with the progress of revelation through scripture that this points us to the Trinity. Um, when people were probably hearing this for the first time, they probably understood that um, it was just this kind of majestic, uh, glorious thing that was being ascribed to God. They didn't think, oh, there must be a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit up there. Uh, most likely not in their in their minds, but we get the um, just the joy of looking back and seeing from the very beginning, not just in chapter one, chapter eleven, that we see this uh, the Trinity, the Godhead, is being uh, revealed even in ways that uh, the people then didn't understand. So um, it's a good reminder there. But and then I think we have to recognize too that this confusion of the speech, this is a gracious action by God. What they were doing was not best for them, and kind of forces them to obey, right? Um, you can't uh, just imagine a bunch of children trying to build a Lego thing and none of them speak the same language. They don't have any instructions. Um, you can imagine they're going to give up on that pretty quickly. Um, the Lord, obviously, I mean, there's he said he wouldn't destroy the earth by a flood, but who's to say he wasn't going to strike some folks down or something like that out of dis- disobedience. I mean, that would have been fully within God's right as God. And uh, but he is gracious to them, chooses to confuse their speech and kind of kicks the footstool out from under them. So this comfort they'd had um, with being one people of one language building all together now that is gone. So they no longer just had one language. And so then we get to verse eight. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So the people disperse as is necessary with their language confused. I I have to think that um, there are kind of maybe these subgroups that form um, linguistically here, that it's not just like if there were a thousand people, there was a thousand languages, Um, especially if they are going to be dispersing in a way that they can be fruitful and multiply and not just as single people running around. So I would assume that there's this kind of um, these subgroups that form, um, but there's a enough of them or enough disagreement that um, they do not feel they can continue building this city altogether. So they are forced into disobedience. Or I mean, I'm sorry, they're forced into obedience after they um, really had their Sight set on being disobedient, but God kind of forces it. So it says they just are dispersed all over the earth. So basically the exact reason they were building the tower, which was so that they would not be dispersed, uh, becomes the reason that they are all dispersed. So a nice little bit of uh, literary irony there that we get to see. But as you can imagine, just like kids with Legos, kids who speak that same language can't build Legos together half the time. So you can imagine if they can't speak the same language, how it goes, but they uh, abandoned the building of the city, the Legos, if you will. Um, And so this place was called Babel. So um, this is kind of two things. So one, um, so Babel um, doesn't actually have like its own individual meaning in Hebrew. So it's Babel, very complicated, right? Um, It doesn't have like its own specific meaning, but it does sound like the word for confused, which is that um, word you'll see there um, in verse nine, when it says the Lord confused the language of the earth. So that word is Balal. So you got Bavel and Balal, um, which you 
he, you can kind of hear the similarity there. And uh, we've talked about it before too. Hebrew um, sound alikes are very, uh, it's a very common uh, literary theme um, in Hebrew is to have these sound alikes that um, kind of create this irony. And so, um, but Babel is also going to be um, a kind of a slight against Babylon. Okay. So, um, well, whether referring to the city or the region, um, sometimes the same word, Babel, is used to refer to Babylon. Okay. And so the Babylonians, they said the word Babylon meant gate of the gods. Okay. So they have this very um, high view of the name of their city and what it was. But um, we see here that the, um, that scripture paints it as we called it that because they were all confused and it's kind of a slight to like confused versus gate of the gods. And then also just recognizing that in believing that they were the gate of a gods, a pantheon of gods that didn't exist, they were also confused in that. So it's a little bit, um, it's a very, it's very clever there. Pretty good, pretty good writing there that um, gives some irony within the words and then some irony against a future Israelite rival. So um, you can imagine they were quite celebratory about that once they got away from Babylon and Babylon wasn't an issue anymore because they probably didn't want to laugh at them before. Didn't go so well for them the first time. Okay, so that's kind of where that comes in. So um, Bavel is not in itself mean confusion, but rather it's a kind of a derivative of this verb for confused. So uh, then we get to the end of the chapter and we get the end of the table of nations here. We finally get Shem's descendants and I'll read a particularly important section of those descendants. Verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Verse 31, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So we see this uh, Shem's descendants, they result in who will be one of the most famous people we will talk about in all of scripture being Abram. And we see how he comes to be. So again, we come to this end, the end of this uh, primeval section of the scripture and we get into the narrative of Abram, which um, I'm excited about. Abram is an incredibly important character in scripture. Um, so many things that start with Abram end with Jesus, and it's just a, a wonderful story to see from the beginning. So um, that's the Tower of Babel, one that you may have heard before. Um, it's a, a a good story to remind us, I think, of a couple things. And really, as I think about some application for us, um, the biggest one we can talk about, like pursuing our own glory um, over God's, which I do think that is um, significant and that we struggle with pride and maybe even we pursue our own glory in ways that we wouldn't necessarily call it that, but that's at the end what it is. But I think the biggest thing for me that stands out as I even look at my own life and my own desires is this um, heart that we sometimes find ourselves with to value our comfort over what God's commands are, that 
sometimes our one of our biggest idols, I think especially we can trend toward this um, in the United States, is this God of comfort, um, this God of uh, recreation, this God of safety um, that we really pursue for ourselves. Um, and I think that this can, obviously, it's no sin to wear some comfy pajama pants when it's cold or anything like that. Not saying that. But I think there are some times when our comfort gets in the way of things that God has clearly commanded for us. Uh, just three examples that came off. I, it didn't take me long at all to think of these. Again, just examining myself and knowing myself. Um, and maybe these are some things you struggle with too. But um, three things that our comfort gets in the way of that God's commanded us. One is evangelism. Another one is giving. And third is being with people that are different from us. So obviously God has cre- uh, called us all to make disciples of all nations uh, teaching them to observe all the things that Jesus has commanded us, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, these are things that we have been commanded to do by the Great Commission uh, that we see the disciples play out as they um, go forth after Jesus' ascension. And again, yes, something we're called to do to share uh, the gospel, to share a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. Uh, but let's be real, evangelism is rarely comfortable. Um, there are times that it is maybe more natural um, and maybe in a relationship that's a little bit more secure, but evangelism and talking to somebody about Jesus and especially someone, you know, doesn't believe in Jesus is always uncomfortable. And a lot of times I know for me, my comfort can easily get in the way of God's command for me to share the gospel. Knowing that of course, being comfortable and not being in an awkward situation really pales in comparison to the opportunity for somebody to believe in the name of Jesus and call in the name of the Lord. Um, but just being real, I'm, I struggle with that. Um, it is so much easier to be comfortable than to be uncomfortable. And evangelism is a way that you really just thrust yourself into being uncomfortable. So that's one way. So another one being giving, um, you know, a lot of times we think, wow, I could give this. Maybe even I feel like God's calling me to do this, but that means I can't have this streaming service. I can't go out to eat as much. I can't go on this vacation. And so sometimes we may choose, you know what, I, I think I'm going to choose the the comfort. I'm going to choose the opportunity to not have to cook as much or meal prep. I'm going to be able to take more lavish vacations. I'm going to be able to uh, do X, Y, Z. Um, that sometimes we can be disobedient in our giving because we want to make sure we keep some for ourselves. And I think that's another way that our comfort can sometimes get, can overshadow uh, God's call on our lives. Cause I don't think 10% is a, is a nice little benchmark, um, for us to see, um, and something we see in the old Testament, but I believe that more than anything, God values the heart of a cheerful giver and whether he's calling you to give 5%, 10%, 20%, 50%, um, that it's more about being obedient to what we're being called to and doing it with heart of joy and cheer. But, uh, Comfort says, no, 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 you keep your money for you and um, somebody else gives the money. Somebody with a lot of money gives the money and we keep our money for ourselves. I think that comfort can easily rear its head then. And then again, being with people that are different from us. um, And that's honestly, especially uh, poignant given the story of the Tower of Babel. They really just wanted to be with each other and they all had the same language and they wanted to just live in their city and not be dispersed. They didn't care if there was an ocean. They didn't want to see it. They wanted that plain in Shinar. Um, but it can be hard to, it can be uncomfortable to be with people that are different than us, that share different views than us, share different backgrounds than us. Um, but we know that even though here in chapter 11, God was calling them to disperse, 
that as uh, believers in the New Testament, as the body of Christ, we are called to be one with one another, even in our diversity. This command to um, f- to spread out and fill the earth doesn't really apply to us as much as it did to these people. The earth is fairly well inhabited. Um, but instead, now our difficulty is um, not that we were all the same, but I want to find my corner where we're all the same. And that can look like a nation, down to a state, down to a city, down to a, uh, air, a region of a city, down to, I like this little pocket of friends and I don't want to have to interact with those even though we go to the same church and, have, oh, hey, we're in the same small group. Sometimes being with people that are different than us, our comfort says, no, they are just kind of, they're just a lot different and it's hard, but God's called us to value one another, value the different gifts that we have. Um, and value each other, knowing that our identity is overall based in the person of Christ. So those are just three ways. And just like he did with the people at Tower of Babel, God has a way of kind of knocking out that footstool from under us. So the footstool representing comfort. Um, God has a way of uh, bringing us to a place where obedience is required, um, where obedience is no longer an option, um, but that, um, you know, you start a new job and all the people around you think differently than you. Um, but you've got to have the job. You need it for your family, pay the mortgage, pay the bills. Okay. Um, God has a way of bringing us to obedience, even when we aren't always willing. Um, but God has called us ultimately to be obedient and evangelism, giving, being with people that are different. Those are just three small examples of many, many ways he's calling us to be obedient. Uh, but he's called us to be obedient and to be about his glory. Cause I said a lot of times, I don't necessarily think of it as, I'm pursuing my own glory, but to pursue our comfort is ultimately we're putting ourselves on the pedestal, right? Because if I think my comfort's more valuable than the command of God, then what does that functionally say about how I view myself versus how I view God? That's what God has called us to be, is about to be obedient so that we can reveal his glory. So uh, I hope this story can be something that um, pushes us in the direction of obedience that we do not instead pursue this safety, this comfort that can become an idol to us, but instead we will live lives of worship to the one true covenant God, Yahweh, the same God that is now, that was there then, has always been, and is worthy of our worship.